0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change.
1: Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at BlueLava.net.
0: gentlemen uh, thank you for joining us on itsp magazine once again we hope you're not bored with it we have a great story coming in today on uh, the channel that we call audio signals i'm flying solo today sean uh, let me my space let me have it and uh, i'm excited because i get to talk to a very very interesting guest that talks about i'm gonna say the history and the future of our technology, the internet, privacy, and the way that we interact at a very human level with it. And that's what we do on ITSP Magazine. We have conversation at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and I couldn't think anything better than covering that with the Electronic Frontier Foundation that just celebrated 30 years 30 years a long time in internet time. And while doing that with the executive director, Cindy Cohen, welcome, Cindy.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you. I have so many questions, but as people know, this is not a Q&A. This <laughs> is try to tell a story. And I think that what we would love to know is, first of all, a little bit about yourself. And then we can jump in into, I don't know, I'm thinking... Memory lane, what was the internet and technology back in 1990s, and where are we now, and where are we going? So just a fun conversation, but let's start with you.
1: Yeah, so um, I am a lawyer by training. I'm not really a technologist, although it, you know, 21 years at the EFF. I know my way around some technologies, um, and I have, as I, I've been at the EFF formally for 21 years. But I actually started working with the EFF in the early 90s um, because the EFF approached me and asked me if I would help them challenge the government's recruitment. Um, uh, restrictions on exports. Um, At the time, uh, encryption with the capability of maintaining secrecy was listed on the U.S. munitions list next to like surface-to-air missiles and tanks. And um, the early EFFers, uh, John Gilmore especially, realized that if we were going to build the Internet into a place where people could have secure and private conversations, we were going to have to take on those regulations. And so he asked me, and I was just a young lawyer uh, at that time, uh, to do it and and i signed on and um have been having fun uh uh, thinking about how how we build an internet that serves users pretty much ever since so I, i joined EFF formally in 2000 and i became the executive director in 2015 um and when i joined i was the legal director so that's kind of my trajectory um i really um it it I just got lucky in that I happened to know some early internet folks and they happened to ask me to do this crazy thing. Um, But it's been a fun ride ever since. And, and, you know, the issue's only gotten bigger and more important to more people since the nineties. And so, um, you know, when I would start off and I would go and do like presentations in front of, you know, lawyers about, you know, internet law, you know, I could do all of the law in about 20 minutes and still have like, 40 minutes of a presentation where, you know, we all kind of sat and looked at each other. And uh, and um, that's, that's um, I think it's safe to say, no longer the case.
0: I remember a time when there was a book that claimed that the whole internet was not in there. And I think it was not more than like 100 pages or something like that. So I think we've gone a long way from yep. that, that time. And it was an exciting time. And uh, I think maybe not everybody is so coming what it was gonna be. Some people thought it was gonna be the utopia. I was one of those excited about democratizing information and excited about finding museum online and libraries and every answer to every question I've ever had as a student at the time. So, But you, in terms of the Literary Frontier Foundation and, and the activists at the time, the hackers they were activists, they saw that it wasn't all flowers and stars, right? So we, you guys decided that there was something that needed to be taken under control right away. What, what do you think was the sparkle that really made EFF become a need?
1: You know the the founding story of EFF um, is is pretty good in terms of 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 reflecting that, which was that you know the Secret Service started doing raids on people who were engaged in um, online communications of some sort. Uh, You know, early uh, early things. I mean, it's not really even fair to call it hacking. Like they found. On the internet, unprotected at some AT and T documents, and the, uh, and that resulted in a raid where a bunch of people got arrested. All the devices that plugged into the wall got seized. And it was really disproportionate and not understanding what was going on in some of these um, early um, news groups. Usually, and for old timers, Usenet news groups is mainly what I'm thinking about. But there were other places as well, as well places like the well and other things. So early places where people would gather um, and um, and and use technology in, in this new way that now I think is second nature to all of us. It's, it's hard for me to explain what a news group is because it is become so infused in what we do online all the time that uh, it's hard to make it sound like anything interesting, but um so you know, uh, John Perry Barlow, who was a funder, who was a founder of EFF, and Mitch Kapor, who was um, the creator of Lo- the founder of Lotus Notes, the first online spreadsheet program. They were both involved in these early internet communities as- and and saw these kind of crazy, disproportionate raids happening, and government really not understanding what was going on, and people getting hurt as a result, and um, and decided that we they needed to found an organization that was going to be standing up for the users and the creators in this new space that we were creating this new, you know, we call it cyberspace now. And it's, it's had a bunch of names, but um, and I'm, still not sure uh, how we can call it because the internet's so big now and it's in all of, you know, I'm not sure that you can call your refrigerator cyberspace even though it talks to the internet, but um, (laughs) I think... It's called cyberspace now. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I don't know. It's it's dragged into it, but so they created this organization to have people who could stand up for the users in this and realizing that they were going to need to put a stake in the ground for that. Um, And that's what the Electronic Frontier Foundation was. It's got a, you know, uh, that's the kind of founding story of it. And, and the first case that EFF did, um, handled, was um, one of those situations. It was about a little company in Austin, a game company called Steve Jackson Games. If, if people are old school gamers, they, it still exists. Um, and somebody in one of their forums posted a, a document that um, was, was very angering, I think, to AT&T. Um, and it resulted in a raid on this little company that nearly drove it under. Um, and so um, uh, the EFF took on the case. It was against the Secret Service, which had done the raid and, and, and you know, vindicated uh, 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 the rights of, of Steve Jackson and, and his company and other people involved. And that was and we were off. And that's that's the kind of um, start that really we still do a lot of that. I mean, we still today do a lot of legal advising of people who are coming up against law enforcement with law enforcement really overreacting to what is going on and not either not understanding the technology or willfully ignoring how the technology works and causing people trouble. We, you know, today, you know, last week there was a, a group called uh, friends for Fullerton that EFF was, was, um, uh, we weren't representing, but we were helping them. And it was a bunch of journalists who found some documents in an open Dropbox. Uh, account uh, for Fullerton, which is a city in California. um, And the city responded by suing them under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, claiming that they had been hacking for finding something that was out in the public and not secure. So, you know, on the one hand, lots and lots has changed since the 1990s. On the other hand, We still see some of these same situations. Now we were able to help the lawyers who were doing that and get a settlement, and the city dropped the case. And you know, we were able to get them out of that, just like we got Steve Jackson. We helped get Steve Jackson out of their problems. But you know, we talk a lot about what's changed in 30 years, but I think it's important to remember that some things really haven't. That we're we're still we're still standing up for the rights of people to do kind of weird and unexpected things on the internet and not have to face criminal prosecution as a result.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about basic things like freedom of speech, like privacy. And I feel like lately we're just trying to redefine it and, and finding a position and a definition into our modern society, right? Because it's like what you said before about the refrigerator and the cyberspace. I, one of the things that I always talk about in what we call redefining society is the fact that there is no more distinction anymore. It's like, we used to say, I'm gonna go surf, surf the World Wide Web, but I'm gonna go online, like if I was doing in another planet, right? But, but now our life is so intertwined between the two. There are generations that don't even know what the world was like be, without the internet. And that is, I think, another handful of issue for data, data privacy, integrity and and all of that. So where where do you guys focus the most now?
1: You know, EFF is big enough now that I wouldn't say that there is a single most. And I think that's good, honestly. The issues, as you point out, the internet and digital issues are infusing our lives in every direction. And while it might be, simpler as an organizational level to just pick one of these issues and do them i don't think that's what the world wants from eff i think that there are there are great purpose-built organizations that work on 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 little pieces of this and we support them we're part of a broader movement but i i think that you know the experience i have as somebody who's been at eff for a long time is people really want us to be there for a wide range of problems and also want us to evolve to address new problems as they come along. Um, And so, you know, for instance, in the 1990s, especially a lot of the issues, the central issues that were going on around people's rights in the Internet were around governments and whether governments could censor, whether governments could protect us from having privacy, whether governments, you know, are were interacting. And then that hasn't gone away. We're still doing that, as I mentioned in the Fullerton case, but also kind of, you know, globally and helping people who are under repressive regimes get information out and fight censorship. And we just we just had a, a, a fight that involved um, the country of Mauritius recently that was trying to pass a censorship provision. um, And we stood up with the local activists there. So those things haven't gone away. But we've seen the rise of corporate interests being a real threat to people's privacy and free speech rights. And and in fact, on a lot of the internet being the decider of whether people get to speak or whether they get privacy and what that privacy looks like. So we've grown um, to address those issues as well. And now you know, I have we have whole, you know, teams of people who focus on the issues around content moderation, around uh passing, you know, digital privacy laws that really get at the problem of this surveillance business model and, and, and targeted advertising. We have, you know, we we developed in the last few years a real expertise and, and developed in looking at competition and how do we foster competition in the digital age. These were things that we really, honestly, they weren't really important issues in the 90s or, you know, uh, we didn't have the hegemony of AOL and, you know, uh, ever in the same way that we really had to deal with the top five, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Um, so I think that, that we have, grown to tried to grow to meet the issues. Uh, So, you know, what, what would you say our our single focus now? I think our single focus now and across the time has been to try to empower the users and the creators. And by the creators, I don't mean the, you know, people at Facebook rolling out the next thing. I mean, the people who are really uh, pushing the edge of creativity online, that those are the two constituencies that we, try to stand up for and uh, you know the where we have to stand up for them and how we have to stand up for them changes over time and has grown over time but i think those are that's kind of the lodestar you know that's kind of the north star for the work that we do
0: it's definitely a, i don't know a monumental goal <laughs> because i feel like as you're describing this i just see a 360 vision on everything and, and really it's important to have organization that has been around for 30 years They have all that experience a lot of lessons learned and probably never finishing to learn because that's one of the things in, in our industry that's for sure right so you, yeah you can never be oh we know how to deal with that because then you have a new social media you have a new advanced technology you I don't know how if you deal with artificial intelligence and machine learning, but definitely I know you deal with data collection and, and all of that. So the fact that you focus on the users is very important because we like to talk to the users and by users, we also mean the the company owner, marketing, CEO, the businesses that use this technology, you started with that. You started yeah. with the first case was just that. So, but the need to bring, and I'm going there now, the the legal, the politicians, the, the people that make the laws to understand. And I know there is a big movement, I can mention a few organizations that I'm familiar with that they are trying to connect this gap between uh, you know pen tester and and, uh, and a white hat mm-hmm. and uh, and the way that they need to be perceived in terms of making the internet and the online world secure mm-hmm. so how do you position yourself now in between this because i don't want to get the the wrong perception that you're like always there like fighting the man <laughs> you know what i mean like you you're actually working with it to to make a better technology world, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we do we do a couple of different things. I mean, we, we have a project, it's it's a, a longstanding one called Coder's Rights, where we really do help people who are doing security research figure out how to tell the world what they found in a secure way, and you know, sometimes people see the big fights where something breaks up and somebody sues a, sues a coder for you know for presenting um, evidence. But what you don't see underneath it is all the work that we do to try to help make sure that that's that's not the right outcome, right? If we if we can navigate it such that the people who find security flaws can still talk about what they found and can get the thing fixed, which is actually much more the most important thing. Right. Um, we will help them try to get there. And, and really um, the ones that break out into litigation, while, you know, sometimes that's important because we can set a legal precedent. Um, so I wouldn't tell you that, I'm you know, always sad when that happens. But that's kind of the, you know, the impact lawyer in me going, oh, oh big problem. Yay, we can make some law. <laughs> Um, But but for most people in that situation, the best thing for them and for the world is to try to just get the problem fixed and let them be able to tell about it. So we do a lot of that. You know, we're in a world now where there are bug bounty programs, right, where there are a lot of systems in place to try to that where companies are signaling that they want to hear about problems and they want to fix it. And I view that as a success of our community. And it's not just EFF, but it's the broader community of security researchers to really get the companies to move from the idea that when somebody tells you a problem with your system, you know, you should sue them and shut them up and 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 make, you know, call the cops on them to one where you welcome that because it's going to make your system better and you build systems to support that. That's a sea change that has happened. It's happened since the early 2000s. And we had a role in it. I think there's a lot of reasons why this has happened, some of which is that some of those same security researchers ended up inside companies and convinced their companies to take a different strategy. Um, But we know some of those people and we've helped them with it. So I think that that's one indication of a a, a way in which we've tried to take what was a problem for our communities and turn it into something that wasn't so much of a problem in our communities. And we still see it whenever there's a new area where security research is, is is taking on the first reaction of the companies involved is to get really mad and sue them. And then we move them into, so this happened with medical devices uh, where the first people who were were hacking into pacemakers or uh, insulin pumps, you know, and showing how insecure those things were because they were terribly insecure. You know, Um, know, reporting out open over the open internet, how your heart's doing in a way that lets somebody hack your heart is really, really dangerous. Um, uh, And they built systems, there were systems that were, you know, maybe not exactly that, but pretty darn close. And so we've we've that was a community where we really had to push and move. And now, you know, medical device companies are much better about people reporting security things. We're going to say the same thing with the Internet of Things. Um, uh, and, you know, um, you know, we watched, you know, Ring, for instance, the the home, you know, uh, the home security thing. We kind of, you know, pay get really, really mad when it, we showed that people could hack into those cameras. But when we made enough noise about it and embarrassed them enough, you know, they, they locked down the rings in a way that makes it much, much safer for people who are using it. Now, we still have other problems with rings. Don't get me wrong. But we, we were able to get Amazon to shift from its initial instincts around this to a much more embracing of the idea that security is a team sport and the independent security research community that are, are doing this, they're... They're ultimately ought to be embraced as part of your team um, and and supported, not viewed as the enemy. Um, So we do that. You know, we work to support strong privacy laws. We work to, you know, in the context of the tech companies, we try to bring in a tech focus. And we're talking a lot about what my friend Corey Doctorow calls adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility. in addition to issues around law and policy, around antitrust and creating competition, both here and in in Europe and and around the world, um, because we understand how the tech works. And so we were able to come into that conversation and introduce another way we could think about bringing in more competition that didn't come out of the policy shops and it didn't come out of the legal shops because they look at what can policy do and what can law do. And we look at those two things, but we also look at what can tech do and so these are all ways in which, you know, we have tools and depending on the problem, we try to bring our to- the right tool to the thing. You know, sometimes you do just need a lawsuit. It's just us and them. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and as a lawyer and a litigator, you know, I kind of relish those moments. They're fun, but they're not the right tool for every problem.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like when you talk to people in the military, it's like our goal is not to have wars. Right, so I love that, and and one other, I'm, I'm a quote moment here, but when you were talking awesome. about running a bug bounty, there is a saying that says that you're running a bug bounty either you you know it or not. I mean, yeah, you, you pay for it, or somebody's yeah. doing it, and that's not a good news. Yeah. Talking about that, I would like to take the opportunity of your you know being involved in with EFF for such a long time. And uh, we mentioned this before we start recording this uh, about uh, the, the the cult of the dead cow and, and the book that Joseph Mann wrote. We had it on the show. And I think one of the important things that you learn in that book is that hacking is not just about technology. What made that organization different was the fact that they under- understood the mindset of people. Yeah. And I'm wondering based on your experience, you know, like when they took Microsoft case, you know, they knew how to use I'm not gonna say manipulate, but you know, I come from advertising myself. So I know how you, you need to push certain lever and and make the news go around so that the public opinion will come around. Yeah. How how important and how do you feel like the media right now, not not the small publication specialized like this one, but the the big media are understanding and representing this kind of issues? Because I'm i very, you know, I got a little pissed here and there with that.
1: I, I, I'm really worried about it. I think that we had a moment where um, everything tech was good, um, although it wasn't all good. I mean, we've always still had the kind of media trope of the, you know, um, nasty hacker in his pajamas in the basement controlling the world you know all the way back you know uh you know we got the computer fraud and abuse act because ronald reagan saw a movie called war games um now you know roderick was the hero there but even in that you get those little kind of um bad hacker stories so that trope still exists and it's it's worse and worse and worse but now we have a new trope which is bad tech executive Right. Like that. And, and I, I worry that um, at this point in time, the media is so excited and focused about how horrible the big tech uh, leaders are. Um, and I, I have problems with them, as I as I uh, often tell people, I was mad at Mark Zuckerberg before you knew what he who he was. You know, Facebook's Facebook reneging on their promise to keep your Work on Facebook private that happened in the late 2000s and we called them out and so did other people. So I'm not I'm not an apologist for these people at all. Um, But now it's hard to convince people that there's an Internet other than Facebook when we go to policy shops. And it's the same in the United States and in the EU. We actually started a. Um, a project that we call the Public Interest Internet. Um, and we we're aiming this mainly at Europe at this point. But there's a problem in the United States as well, where we're trying to point out that the Internet isn't just the five big companies. And um, and the other parts of it need support, or you're going to wash those babies. You know, we have an American saying, you know, you don't throw the babies out with the bathwater, right? Like uh, there are a lot of babies in the bathwater and they're called Wikimedia. They're called Mozilla. They're called all the distributed web uh work that's done they're called you know the, the 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 tiny little company that's trying to make their way and you know whether it's DuckDuckGo trying to challenge google or um you know the the, the next thing that's going to come along and eat the lunch of these big tech companies so you have to think about law and policy that isn't just aimed at those guys because you're going to wash a lot of other people away and in fact you're going to wash away the things that will help us diminish their power um, so, so I, 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 worry that the media narrative has gotten so delighted with, you know, poking holes in the people they used to revere, you know, that when they revered them, that was kind of a misleading thing. And it wasn't all that great for the little guys. And now that they hate them, it's misleading and it's not all that great for the little guys. So, um, I think it's really important for us to begin to keep lifting up the stories of the people who aren't those big giants and remind everybody that, that, that you know, the Internet didn't start off as five big companies um, and it doesn't have to be five big companies. But in order to do that, we need to foster um, competition and an ability for little guys to make their way, not create such a heavy burden on, aimed at the big companies that the little ones can't shoulder it. Um, and, and, you know, I've worried we've worried for a while about the GDPR in this regard. You know, the GDPR puts a pretty heavy burden on. Companies that Facebook can totally shoulder. It's no big deal for Facebook or Google to really shoulder those things. But we've been keeping an eye on the little companies and especially little data data management companies. Like, you know, uh, if they can't shoulder that, then everybody's just going to go to Amazon Web Services to host their things because Amazon can comply with the GDPR. That's a failure, uh, uh, so so we need to think about both of these things. And, and you know, it's not like lawmakers aren't doing that, that we're not having some traction. But at this point, there's so much glee and so much anger at the big tech giants that I feel we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. And before I start, let me give you one more example, which is the Australian media law. Right. The Australian media law was designed to deal with the fact that it, it was I think I think they were trying to make it um to recognize that Facebook especially and Google has really uh, been a factor in the demise of small local media well what happened as a result of the Australian media law is that Google had to give a lot of money to Rupert Murdoch that's not helping right that's not the that's not the answer to the problem and um and the, the big companies you know compromised to throw money at the Murdoch empire doesn't help the situation. And so it, to me, it's a really good example of a pr- real problem and a regulatory solution that didn't pay attention to who we want to lift up and instead only paid attention to to wanting to punish the big guys. And we're seeing this across the board. And it's something that's really important for people to think about that, you know, just because you're mad at Zuckerberg doesn't mean that everything that gets proposed that might make him unhappy is a good proposal.
0: Yeah. The, unfortunately, you humans we have this tendency to picture black or white good or evil and easy to understand and we we miss all the colors in between right so uh, and this focus on like you said right, technology is great technology sucks but we forget that even when we do have problem technology brought so much innovation and democratization and education i mean let's look at this past year i mean what would i've been doing without Technology and without the possibility to do online learning and 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 Zoom and video calls and all of that. So as we get here and uh, as long as much as I want to talk to you forever, <laughs> but uh, let's do a little projection of how do you see? Uh, I'm not going to say the next thirty years of Electronic Frontier Foundation, but you know I, I love to look into the future. So. Either utopian, dystopian, or something in between. Um, what, what, what do you think? How do you feel about where we're going?
1: You know, I am I am notoriously a bad predictor of the future. You know, uh, <laughs> me too. Okay. So I, I don't do that, but I, because I just suck at it. And um, but um, I do think that the the truth is that we we have I think as a society um, begun to lose the idea that we could do good things with technology. We've begun to lose a vision of a better tech future. So I think the first thing to do is to, we need to imagine the, uh, a tech that works for us and then build towards it because you can't build a better world unless you can envision a better world. And there are people who are leading this work. I mean, we we try to at EFF. You know, my friend Ethan Zuckerman at, um, uh, just had a big conference called Reimagine, where he pulled together a bunch of people who were doing this. Um, and and I think that that's the step we need to do. We need to center the users and empower the users, and we need to center the creators of of the next cool thing that all of us will enjoy. And um, and try to Find ways to lift them up. So i I think that's the that's the the first that's the key to it. I think that we could build a utopia and we could build a dystopia. We could do either. It's not. It's never preordained. And I think that's one of the one of the the hits on the early internet people that um is a little true but also a little false which is that they just assumed that tech was going to magically make everything better and my standard retort to that is you don't found the electronic frontier foundation if you think tech is going to magically make anything better i you know we started by fighting to free encryption that was because we knew we had to do something to make the tech flourish um so i think it's a little you know um not based in reality to say that everybody in the 90s just thought tech was going to magically make anything better that's just you know it, it kind of erases me and all the work that we did at the eff and and um i, I think that that's not fair or right um and, but the but i do think that we need to take responsibility for building um for thinking about what a better world looks like and then building it everything from you know Privacy laws to keeping encryption free to maybe building devices that don't screw up our backs, right? Uh, because we're all looking into them all the time. Um, the tech doesn't care; it can do all of these things or not do all of these things. I mean, there are some hard tech problems, but in my experience, the the problems aren't in you know somebody having the right idea; they're in putting all the things together to make it to make it work. So that's my that's my hope for the future. Eff is going to be there. We 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 are uh, we're stronger than we've ever been. Uh, we're larger than we've ever been. You know, we came through COVID with our support growing. And I think that's because, um, we have loyal, You know, we have 40,000 loyal members of EFF and more all the time who realize that they have to do the same thing that frankly Mitch and John and John Perry Barlow did, which is put a stake in the ground for users. Um, So we're gonna be here and we hope that we're just one of a huge and powerful movement that is making the world better for us all.
0: I couldn't finish better than this. I mean, a human centric technology, I always joke that technology doesn't rain from the sky or from space. We we build it. We envision it. We build it. And for some reason, we then we kind of lose control over it. Or maybe people that take control over it, they have really no good intentions. So we need creativity. We need to keep doing it. But we always need to think about the human at the center of it. And I think that we do need Electronic Frontier Foundation and many other smaller organizations that I'm familiar with that are going to be on the show. They're specializing in one particular thing or another, but we need the power of somebody who's been there for 30 years and hopefully will be there for other many, many years uh, to, to be with us. And you're always going to be uh, welcome you and your organization to have conversation on ITSB magazine, and for the audience, we'll have notes on the podcast so that if you don't know, strangely, about the Transfrontier Frontier Foundation, you find the link and please go ahead and support them because they're doing an amazing job. Cindy, thank you so so much for being part of this.
1: Thank you. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com.